Holy Father, of the Father's love begotten, that refrain reminds us why it is that this season is so dear to our hearts. You came. You came in the Savior. And because you came, we're here. And because we're here, we are eager to know how best to fulfill your will for this hour in earth's history. Let today's teaching be clear, holy God. Let our minds then know how you would have us respond. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This week's Time Magazine cover story is proof enough that if you want to know the truth about Islam, don't go to Rome. Go to Bethlehem instead. On the screen behind me, you see the cover story, title of the cover story there on Time. The Pope confronts Islam. And unless you've slept through the last few days, you surely know that the whole world has watched as the Roman pontiff this week made his first papal journey to an Islamic nation, as it turns out, the nation of Turkey. A journey even more intensely now, perhaps more critically now, scrutinized, given the Pope's carefully crafted, unsubtle, public condemnation of Islam as a religion of violence a few weeks ago in that September speech. Time, by the way, notes that those comments, in fact, engendered, uh, let me read this here, he was hailed, the Pope was hailed by cultural conservatives worldwide. Oh boy, about time somebody said that. Quoting uh, Helen Hitchcock, head of the Catholic organization Women for Faith and Family, she said, he has said what needed to be said, but perhaps more needs to be said than what the Pope has said. Which is why if you're looking for the truth about Islam, don't follow Rome. Go to Bethlehem instead. Open your Bible with me, please, to the, that glorious story, the Christmas narrative of that starry, starry night. The Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 2. Matthew, chapter 2. I don't know how many times you and I have read this story, this beloved Christmas narrative, but I want to tell you something. I have missed it every single time until the last time. And when I saw it the last time, I said, whoa, I have got to share it with all of you. And so here we are. This is the right moment in the season to share it. Open your Bible, please, to Matthew chapter 2. I'll be in the New King James Version. If you didn't bring a Bible, that's why there's a pew Bible in front of you. Grab that pew Bible, please, and turn to page 649, Matthew chapter 2. The familiar story here begins in verse 1, Matthew 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, verse 2, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Once upon a time, we owned a Ford Taurus. This is not a Christmas story. <laughs> never had owned one before. Never planned to own one again. But th thanks to a friend of Karen's brother, we bought a used one. And as soon as we did, true, as soon as we did, I began to see Ford Tauruses everywhere. I had never seen a Ford Taurus before. But now they are everywhere. Has that, has that happened to you? You buy a car now, everybody's driving the same car. What's up with that? Ah, we've been given new eyes. We have a new familiarity with, what we, with, with that which we did not see before. And now that it's familiar, boom, we spot it. Just the same way with the story that, of the wise men in Matthew chapter 2. I don't know. I, I, must have, I must have read this story a hundred times before. But it wasn't until after that teaching that you and I shared back in September in our Rumors from the East series, Star Rising Over Islam. It wasn't until after doing all that study that suddenly, as it co coincidentally turned out, I began after that a new worship journey for my early mornings and I chose the book of Matthew and I'm not but two paces into Matthew when I see it for the first time. Do you understand that the wise men are from the east? How come I never saw that before? They are the sons of Ishmael. In fact, get this, the Arabs are the opening heroes to the Jesus story. 
That point is so critical, I need you to scribble it down as fast as you can, and then we'll spend the rest of our teaching time together to prove it. Write it down, please. Take your study guide out. It should be in your worship bulletin this morning. If you didn't get one, this is a very important one. You want to make sure you have it, so just raise your hand. Our ushers will make sure that you get one in the balcony. I want to make sure everybody in the Wind Symphony has a study guide behind me. And those of you who are watching on TV, let me put our website on the screen, and you will see. I'll put it up there right now. There it is www.pmchurch.tv. That's our website. You go to that website. We're beginning a little mini-series here called Wise Men from the East. Did a series earlier called Rumors from the East. Now, this will be Wise Men from the East. Title of this teaching, Star Still Rising. You say, why'd you put the still in, Dwight? Because I want to make sure that if you get both, and I hope you get both teachings, you'll be able to differentiate them. This is the second one in the series, Star Still Rising over Islam. All right, jot this sentence down. Oh, and by the way, those of you who are watching, you go to that website. It says study guide right by that uh, title, Star Still Rising. Click study guide. You'll have the same one. I'm so excited about getting into this. I want to fly, but I want to not go so fast you can't even tell what I'm saying. All right. Okay, everybody have a study guide. Those of you watching on TV, good. Jot it down, please. Number one, right there at the top. The Arabs are the opening heroes of the Jesus story. They're the opening heroes, by the way, outside of Joseph, Mary, and Jesus. They're the first human beings in the New Testament. The first in Matthew. The first in the New Testament. The Arabs. Now, let's prove it. Let's prove it. Let's go back to the book of beginnings. Go back to the book of Genesis now. This is fascinating. Book of beginnings, Genesis, the first book of the Bible. Let's go to Genesis chapter 25, please. Genesis chapter 25. Pick it up in verse 1. Genesis 25, verse 1. Abraham, this is Father Abraham, Abraham again took a wife. Oh, I want to really, I want to really detour here, but I can't. I can't. We have too much important uh, coverage to do. But I, I will tell you this. It's okay. When your spouse has died, it's okay to marry again. Sometimes people wonder, well, you know, I need to prove my loyalty. No, 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 no. In fact, studies have shown, true, studies have shown that people who have a happy marriage are the first to remarry. They had it so good, they want more of it. Now, I need to tell you that the flip side is not true, that those who have chosen not to remarry had a terrible marriage. I don't want to get in trouble with anybody here. (laughs) So the reverse is not true. My mother had, after my father died, my mother fell in love with another man. And she had me conduct the wedding. This was my text for the wedding. And Abraham again took a wife. Your first marriage is what makes history. That's what tells everybody about life. The second marriage, nobody even remembers you. You don't remember Abraham's second wife. That's okay. The second marriage is not about making history. It's about making companionship. It's loneliness that gets filled. And so it's a great, it's a great line. Abraham again took a wife. Sarah died. And her name was Keturah. Be honest. Had you ever heard of her before? Nope. I love the man that my mother married. He's a great man. Dutch immigrant. All right. And his next wife, verse, verse 2. And she bore him Zimram, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shuah. Those are her kids. And then the, then the kids of the kids are listed. Forget that. Let's drop down to verse 5. And Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. Remember, he already has two boys, Isaac and Ishmael. And verse 6. But Abraham gave gifts to the sons of the concubines, which Abraham had. And while he was still living, he sent them eastward... Away from, the, from, away from Isaac, his son, to the country of the east. Ah, jot this down real quick. You have your study guide in front of you. Please note that these boys are just as much the sons of Abraham as are Isaac and Ishmael. Come on, is Abraham their dad? Is Abraham their dad? But of course, they are not half-breeds. They're not half-sons. They're full sons. These are my boys. Different moms. But same, same dad. Keep writing. And they move to the east. They go east. Just like Ishmael, by the way. Let's, let's, let's read, uh, go down to verse 8. Uh, Genesis 25. Then Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age. An old man, 
and full of years and was gathered to his people. I love that metaphor of death, the Hebrew metaphor. You're gathered to your people. That's, that's beautiful. Verse 9, And his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite. Okay, that's a little family plot. Now they're going to have a last word about Ishmael because he fades off the scene here. Verse 12. Now this is the genealogy of Ishmael, Abraham's son, firstborn son, by the way, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's maidservant, bore to Abraham. Then it lists the sons. We don't need to read all the sons' names because it's, they're, they're recaptured in verse 16, summarized. Drop down to 16. These were the sons of Ishmael, and these were their names by their towns and their settlements. Twelve princes according to their nations. Twelve. Look at verse 17. These were the years of the life of Ishmael. 137 years and he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. Now, verse 18. They dwelt from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt, as you go toward Assyrian. Ishmael, he died in the presence of all his brethren. Jot this down, please. The sons of Ishmael were twelve. Twelve, just like the sons of Israel. Jacob's name became Israel. He had twelve boys, but Ishmael had the twelve before Jacob ever did. See? The eldest is leading the way here. They're twelve. Keep writing. And they, the sons of Ishmael, dwell in the east. Keep writing. Scholars note that in both the Old Testament and New Testament, east is dominantly linked, particularly in the Hebrew mind, it is dominantly linked with the Arabian desert. Write in the word Arabian. The Arabian desert in Transjordan. You're saying, Dwight, wh- wh- where is that? I want to give you now, take a look at this. Once you get Arabian written down, look at this is a satellite picture of east. You see the little green strip there? That's Palestine. They are east of Palestine. Arabian desert. By the way, not Persia. No, 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 no. Persia is too far over. These are the children of the east. are not from Persia. They're from Arabia. All right. Yeah, but you say, come on, I know what's going on here. They're just a bunch of pagans, and God wants them out of there. Shh, get out of here. Go, 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 go somewhere else and play. Are you serious? Come on, come on. Are you serious? You've got to be kidding me that you would be thinking that way. Give me a break. I mean, don't you suppose that the God of Abraham, who raised up this mighty man of faith to be the father of monotheism in the pagan world and a missionary of the true faith to the ends of the earth, this man through whom the Messiah would come to bless all nations. Don't you suppose the God of Abraham had a vested interest in all of Abraham's boys? Come on. And would try with all his divine power to successfully preserve the worship of the true living creator God among them too? But of course... Just because they weren't born of Sarah, who, by the way, was not exactly a paragon of faith herself, but were born of Hagar and Keturah, surely would not mean that they were spiritually dwarfed and morally dysfunctional. Now, would it? It would not. Just think. Think clearly now. In fact, let me introduce you to the Children of the East Hall of Fame. I want you to go to this Hall of Fame in order to disabuse us of the notion that if you're from the East, you are spiritually defective. Watch this. Get your pen ready, because here we go. But first, uh, let's, I want you to see this text. We won't look the others up, but I want you to go to the book of Job, please. You've got to see this in your own Bible. It's page 346 in the Pew Bible. Job, chapter 1. Some of you didn't even know this text was in the Bible. Take a look at this. Job chapter 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him. Also his possessions were, wow, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large household. So that here it comes. This man was the greatest of all the people of the East. You didn't know that Job was an Arab. He is not a son of Isaac. He's a son of the East. And he's the greatest of the children of the East. Jot this down, please. We're putting the little three-name Hall of Fame together. So write in the name Job. See it on the screen there. This man was the greatest of all the people in the East. Capital E, East. That's the whole region, the Transjordan region. Job. Wow, was an Arab. Ah, is there another Hall of Famer? Yep. 
Let's put these words on the screen. Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. Just a moment ago, we read one of Keturah's sons was Midian. So this is from the Abraham's line through Keturah. Uh, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he, Moses, led the flock to the back of the desert, came to Horeb. And that's when they have the big burning bush moment. Time-shifting, paradigm-shifting moment. Now, let me put one more text up there. Uh, Exodus chapter 18, verse 12. Then Jeth- So the Exodus is over. Israel is now in the wilderness. They're marching to freedom. And then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering, because he's joined them now. He's brought Moses' wife and, and sons. He took a burnt offering and other sacrifices to offer God. And watch this. And Aaron, the high priest of the entire community of faith, and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. This is a liturgical meal taking place. And guess who's leading it? The priest of Midian is leading the Jewish, the Israel, Israel's high priest in worship. The priest of Midian is worshiping the same God, the Most High God. Jot this down, please. Write in the name Jethro. And then just fill in that word. The priest of Midian took a burnt offering and other sacrifices to offer God. Elohim. It's the God of the universe. It's the God who created this world. Same God. They're worshiping together. One more. Let's put just one more name in the Hall of Fame. This one's a little more dubious, but we'll still put him in there. His name. uh, You'll see his name. Numbers 22. Let's put it on the screen. Numbers 22, verse 8. And he This is Balaam. All right. This is Balaam. You heard of Balaam? Started out fine. Ended terribly. He said to them, Balaam did, because remember King uh, Balak of Midian, by the way, also of Midian. King Balak said, hey, I got all these people coming out of Egypt. Man, would you just come and curse them? Because I know you're a prophet of the Most High God. So they come. He sends a little embassy, uh, ambassadors, and they come. And he says to them, hey, guys, sleep here tonight. I got to talk to God about this. I'll let you know tomorrow whether I can go with you or not. I will bring back word to you as the Lord Yahweh, the covenant God. The covenant God, who's known by this unique name only among this community of the saved. I'm going to talk to him. He's my God. Isn't that interesting? And so the princes of Moab stayed with Balaam. Well, you know what happened. Balaam, God says, don't go, boy. But filthy lucre got the best of Balaam. He wanted that money. Give me the money. Give me the money. And so he sold his soul for it. Look at over here in Numbers 24. When, when he gets there to curse, God takes over and says, you, you will only say what I say, boy. And here's what God had him say. Numbers 24, verse 17. Oh, I see this one coming in the future. Balaam speaking now, but not now. I behold him, but not near. Hey, a star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. That's the oracle of Balaam. Jot it down, please. Balaam, the third person in this Children of the East Hall of Fame. I, a prophet from the East, will bring back word to you as the Lord. Please capitalize that. L-O-R-D. It's the four-letter... Word in the Hebrews, that famous name of God, Yahweh. As the Lord speaks to me, a star shall come out of Jacob. Okay, the point. Keep, keep going, please. The point. Clearly, God did preserve his true worship among the sons of Ishmael and the children of the east. We wondered that earlier. Would he do it? He's done it. The Hall of Fame is proof he's done it. So the question is, could not the wise men of the Christmas story have been in the lineage of the faithful children of the east? Well, yeah. Yeah, but you know what I've heard, Pastor? You know what I've heard? They're a bunch of magicians. Okay, fair point. Let's go back and take a look at Matthew 2 one more time. Look at Matthew 2, or just read those, ver- those words again. Matthew 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who's been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now, did I put this in the study guide? I'll put it on the screen. Uh, the Greek word for uh, the wise men here is magoi. It's plural. From whence comes our English word magi, which, which, by the way, the first four letters of magician. You're right, magician. But is it bad to be a magician? One of the magi. Well, let's ask Daniel that. Do you know what Daniel was called in the kingdom of Babylon? Look at this, Daniel chapter 4, verse 9. Belteshazzar. See, Nebuchadnezzar is speaking to Daniel right here, and he's using his uh, Babylonian name. Hey, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians. You're the number one magician. Because I know that the spirit of the holy God is in you, and no secret troubles you. Explain to me the visions of my dream that I've seen. Give me the interpretation. Well, 
if Daniel is the chief of the magicians, I kind of guess that it's okay to be a magician and you can still follow the Most High God. Leading one scholar, jot this down, one scholar to conclude that these magi were possessors or users of supernatural knowledge. That's what distinguished them. They weren't hocus-pocus David Copperfield wannabes. They deal with the eternal. And the eternal deals with them. And incidentally, they were truly, get this, they were truly wise men. The East had a coveted reputation in ancient times. I never saw this before. Take a look at this. First Kings chapter 4, verse 30. Thus Solomon's wisdom. Who is Solomon? The, most, the wisest human who has ever lived. Sacred literature tells us. Thus Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of even, you can add the word, of even. The men of the East. See, they already have a reputation. They're the wisest. But Solomon comes along and he's even wiser. First Kings chapter 4, verse 30. Isn't that amazing? They really are wise men. I know you don't have the Apocrypha in your Bible. I have one Bible that has it. I checked it out. It works. We'll put it in your study guide for you. The little book. That's the books in between the Old and the New Testament. Baruch. Chapter 3, verse 23. Jot this down. In fact, we put the answer that we left the answer in there so that because you have no way to verify it. Baruch describes the sons of Hagar who seek for wisdom. See, the answer is already there. For wisdom upon the earth. Hey, the point, ladies and gentlemen, the sons of Hagar would these be the sons of Ishmael? The mother of the mother of Ishmael. They would be the sons of Ishmael, would they? Yeah. The sons of Ishmael are known for this wandering hunger for wisdom upon the face of the earth. They really were wise men. Could not the wise men, see this is what I'm thinking out loud, could not the wise men have been a part of the faithful lineage of the children of the East, like Job, like Jethro, even Balaam, whose prophecy, by the way, they were very cognizant of. Let's put that prophecy up again. They knew this prophecy. Uh, Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, a star shall come out of Jacob. And a scepter shall rise out of Israel. The appearance of a star. The oracle is declaring that the appearance of a star will be the harbinger of the promised king of heaven. After all, had not their father. By the way, the wise men would be of the father of Abraham, wouldn't they? They're they're sons of Abraham. Had not their father been told that out of his loins a seed would come that would bless the entire planet. They're sons of Abraham. They know the promises They had the ancient oracle of Balaam. But hold on. Imagine. Get this. Get this. Imagine my surprise to learn that the wise men may have been cognizant of another prophecy. I have never, ever heard this prophecy linked before to the Christmas story. But it is as plain as the nose on your face. You're going to read it for the first. Oh, we've read these words before. But now look. Watch this. They knew this prophecy too. And I need you to see this, not on the screen, but in your Bible. Go back to the gospel prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 60. I had never, ever seen this before. i tell you where I got it. My friend Glenn Russell, who is a professor of religion here at Andrews University. He said, hey, Dwight, I got a book in my library. You have got to read the book. Title of the book, Arabs in the Shadow of Israel. It's written by Tony Maaluf, an Arab Christian professor teaching in Amman, Jordan. Got his Ph.D. from Dallas Theological. All right, so he's teaching. He's, he's just carefully schooled. He's written his book. And that's where I found this. Ma'aluf suggests that, in fact, the wise men were very cognizant of Isaiah 60. You've never read this in this, in this context before, but let's just take a look at this. Isaiah 60, verse 1, arise. Think of the light metaphor now in a star. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has is risen upon you. This is talking about Jerusalem now. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth. Even Jerusalem will be covered in darkness and deep darkness the people. But the Lord will arise over you. His glory will be seen upon you. The Gentiles shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. The church father, Tertullian, of the early fourth century said, you know who those wise men are? They're the kings of Arabia. Now, Isaiah is saying, 60 verse 3, kings are going to come. There's going to be a light that rises over you, Jerusalem, and kings will come in search of that light. But you say, Dwight, come on, I don't see it there. Six cinches it beyond a question. Verse 6, look at verse 6. The multitude of camels. 
The multitude of camels shall cover your land. The dromedaries of Midian. There we go. Arabia right there. Midian. The dromedaries of the Arabian desert and Ephah and those from Sheba shall come. And notice what they're going to bring when they come. They shall bring gold and incense. Wow. And they shall proclaim the praises of the Lord. Can you believe that? I never saw this before. Jot this down, please. A stunning prediction. This is in your study guide now. A stunning prediction 600 years before Christ that a light would arise one day in the darkness over Jerusalem and that kings from Arabia, write it in, kings from Arabia would be attracted to that brightness and they would bring gold and incense, two products Arabia is known for. It is the world headquarters for incense, frankincense and myrrh. Arabia, 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 and gold. And they would be attracted to that brightness and bring gold and incense in their search for the glory of the Lord. Now, here's the question, ladies and gentlemen. Could it be that the wise men not only were conversing with Balaam's oracle, but also studied this prophecy of Isaiah? And so when the star appears, they say, wait a minute, we know how to respond now. We know we must go and take gifts with us. Isaiah 60, could that be a prediction of Matthew 2? Tony Tony Maoluf concludes that, in fact, that is precisely what they did. But hold on. This gets even better. Imagine my further surprise to discover in Tony Maoluf, a Christian scholar who shares my conviction that the star that appears in Matthew 2 is not a natural phenomenon. It is a supernatural revelation from God. I have never found a Christian scholar to teach that. Now, I have grown up believing that, and I'll show you why. These words of desire of ages. I want you to, you have to fill this in to keep your pen handy. I'm reading now from that classic on the life of Jesus. The wise men had seen a mysterious light in the heavens upon that night when the glory of God flooded the hills of Bethlehem. As the light faded, a luminous star appeared and lingered in the sky. It was not a fixed star nor a planet, and the phenomenon excited the keenest interest. That star was a distant company of shining angels. Write that in. Write in the word angels. That star was a distant company of shining angels, but of this the wise men were ignorant. Yet they were impressed that the star was of special import to them. They consulted priests and philosophers, searched the scrolls of the ancient records, like Isaiah 60 perhaps. Could this strange star have been sent as a harbinger of the promised one? Keep going. The Magi had welcomed the light of heaven-sent truth. Now it was shed upon them in brighter rays through dreams. Write that in. You'll see why these two words are key. Through dreams, they were instructed to go in search of the newborn prince. I about fell off my chair as I'm reading this book to discover that Tony Mahuluf has concluded the exact same thing. You have to fill it in, but watch this. this is, these are his words now. If the star observed by the Magi in the East could have been interpreted naturally... It would not have motivated those daily stargazers to leave their land and go to Jerusalem. Furthermore, how true, no natural star, conjunction of stars, or even a supernova is able to lead people from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, which is a trip of five miles south. Come on. You can't look at a a star light years away and say, let's see, did that go five miles? Did that go five miles, guys? Should we go about five miles down the road? You can't use a star to do that. Impossible. See the the New Testament scholar's point? Now watch. In addition, now this is good. In addition, a natural astral appearance. Okay, it was just a comet. The comet swooped low. In addition, a natural astral appearance in heaven, no matter how brilliant it might be, could not have indicated the the minute details in the town of Bethlehem because the star picked the house out. It didn't just pick the town. It picked the house in the town and said, that's the house. Go to that house. (laughs) You can't have a comet do that. In a well-written article, New Testament scholar Dale Allison offered an answer to the above questions by suggesting that the star was a guiding angel. Isn't that something? A century earlier, Desire of Ages made that precise point. It was angels. Angels. A New Testament scholar comes along and says, the only way I can figure it out, it's got to be an angel. It's divine. It's special revelation, as the theologians like to refer to it. Amazing. And by the way, Mouluf, he's not through yet. One more line. You see that there in your study guide. Abraham's Arabian children were singled out in the desert 
and became the recipients of a special revelation from God about the birth of the Messiah. These worshipers were led in a dream to go back. You remember at the end of the story? Instead of going back to Herod, they, they, they got a dream and said, Hey, don't go back to Herod. Go back another way. You remember that? Right? So that's what he's talking about. These worshipers were led in a dream to go back to their land following a different route. It is our conviction. Here we go. That they also may have been led to come to Jerusalem through a dream or a special revelation from heaven. End quote. Wow. Over a century earlier, Desire of Ages had already made the point, And guess what? I believe them both. I believe Maluf. Maluf. And I believe Desire of Ages. I've never seen it before. A scholar making the point. But it's been made. Leading me to this question. We move to a wrap here. If God was able to shine a light of truth upon the hearts of those children of the East, those sons of Ishmael 2,000 years ago, come on, folks, think with me. Could he not, would he not be doing the same today among the same peoples of the East? By the millions, are there not honest and hearted seekers after truth in the Muslim faith too? Huh? And if the answer is yes, and by the way, I believe the answer is yes, then does it not follow that Bethlehem, not Rome, ought to be our example today? And that instead of alienating the children of the East with our anti-Islamic rhetoric, we ought to be at the forefront of a movement that seeks to share with them the light that shines upon both of our communities of faith. I recently listened to a series of CDs. Lectures given by the late Dr. Robert Darnell, a member of our community of faith, an expert in Islamic studies, an anthropologist, in which he carefully chronicled how, in fact, the Quran teaches the seeds of every divine truth that you and I embrace. The seeds are all there. It was uh, Darnell's lifetime mission and conviction to cultivate those seeds in dialogue with the children of the East. And in an hour of history, when the West is turning against those children, ought we not to be the first to raise up our voices in their behalf? Think. Why shouldn't we? For what if... And by the way, the story of Christmas would hardly let us do otherwise, would it? What if the Spirit, the mighty Spirit of Allah... By the way, I got some letters from viewers after that last teaching. And one viewer said, don't you know that the name Allah is a name for Lucifer? Oh, I hope you never, I hope you never, 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 never embrace that. Allah, listen carefully now. Allah is closer to Elohim. The Hebrew name for God, then, is our English word God. In fact, hold on to your seats. The English name God is a Nordic pagan God. We've taken a pagan God's name and we said, that's the name of our God. And we all call him God. That's a pagan. It's a Nordic pagan myth. So don't you ever get pushed into the corner where you're saying, Allah is a demonic name. Allah is the name of the living God. Allah is the creator of the universe. Allah is the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Ishmael, Jethro, Job, and even Balaam. What if through dreams the mighty spirit of Allah is again raising up a movement within Islam in preparation for the Messiah's return? Would we not want to partner with that mission? Wouldn't we? Wouldn't you? I want to end with the story I promised you a moment ago. A modern story of another wise man in the land of the East. The names and the localities have been carefully concealed to protect the moving of the Spirit. But the one who shared this story with me, who personally heard the story, wrote it up for me, mailed to me the story. Has captured the details. And I don't want you coming up to me afterwards and saying, can I have a copy of that story? Because the answer already is no. I'm not giving anybody a copy. The only copy you get is audio or video. That's it. I don't want the story circulated. I don't want to damage any work that the Spirit of God is doing now. But the localities, everything's been shifted a little so that you won't be able to find out. Remember, and by the way, the title of the story, the Sheik Faruqi and the Man in White. I'm going to read that story to you. Just sit back. Amira's husband was a good man. But she still had great sadness in her heart and shame that she was passing of age and yet she still did not have a child. 
She was a godly woman, and yet she was distressed. How could it be that God had not given her a son? When, humanly speaking, there was no more hope, she committed herself to God and fasted and prayed for a child. Then she sadly made her way to the tribal place of worship, and as she wept and laid open her soul before her Creator, she covenanted with God that if He were to give a child, she would dedicate Him completely to His service. Anything wrong with that picture so far? Good mother, good mother. She promised that he would have a life of serving others. As she prayed, a holy peace came over her. She felt assured that the Almighty, the merciful and the compassionate, titles given to God in her religion, had heard her prayer. In her innocence, she took the sand from the holy ground and rubbed it on her stomach. And she continued praying, begging God. As she did, she felt something kick within her. She knew now that her prayer had been answered. Her son, a miracle child, the child of her old age, she would raise with special care. She pleaded now that God, that he himself would teach her to raise this special child. You've got to teach me. If you give him to me, you teach me. And she named the miracle child Faruqi. As little Faruqi grew, the friends and relatives asked Aymira, Your son is so special. Who has taught you to raise him? She would always reply with the same answer. Sayedna Isa al-Messi. The Lord Jesus, the Messiah. He is the one who gives me guidance as to how to raise my little Faruqi. Nobody knows quite sure how this guidance came, whether it came via a dream or a vision or just how, for she never revealed how she was instructed. There was a, that was a bit odd for her to be talking about Esau in this way since she was a staunch Muslim. As were everyone in her tribe, in her province, and nearly everyone in her country. Get the picture? People noticed a marked difference in little Faruqi. He was so sweet and kind. And many times he would give up his own things to give to others. He was so helpful around the house. One day when he was only seven years old, he had a dream. In his dream, he saw a man in white who beckoned him to come and meet him in a distant city several days' journey from his little village. He told his family about his dream. His father and his elder stepbrothers laughed, told Faruqi to dismiss the dream, but his mother, Amira, knew otherwise. Little Faruqi must go even if he has to go by himself. And after encouragement from his mother, little Faruqi started off on his long journey. Before he left, she gave a few coins from her precious little savings. All by himself. Now, just get this picture. He crossed the desert walking some 48 kilometers, 30 miles. For a little seven-year-old boy. For a big boy, even. This represented a very large undertaking. He finally arrived at the first big town where he could board the train for a three-day journey to the big city. He arrived in that city hoping to find the man in white who had called him. But alas, there was no one. He searched and searched. One day went by, two days. Maybe his father and elder brothers were right after all. Maybe it was just a silly dream. But he, as he wearily continued his search all over town, on the seventh day, he was totally discouraged and crying. His money gone. He was hungry and tired. But worst of all, the man in white seemed to have cheated him. He decided to return home, but he had no money left to pay for the train ticket. He hoped maybe they would have compassion on a little boy, and so he went to board the train. And just as he stepped aboard, somebody put his hand on Faruqi's shoulder. He turned around. There was the man in white. He took Faruqi by the hand and he led him to a place to have a meal. There he explained to little Faruqi about how far their people had wandered from God's original plan. The man in white taught little Faruqi many things and told him that he should teach others everything he learned. He spoke to him about the abuses to the poor, the, the social injustices of his land, and about God's true day of worship. He also told him that those who are followers, followers of the Isa al-Masih would be nearest to God in the day of judgment. He then told little Faruqi to go home, and he said he would meet him there. Little Faruqi said, I have no money to return. The man in white said, don't worry. Just board the train, and all your needs will be provided for. Just as the man in white had said, all his needs were provided for. Little Faruqi, in his excitement, had forgotten to ask his name. And as he was boarding the train, he turned around and asked the man, What is your name, sir? The man in white responded, You can call me the Honest. After a long journey, very tired and exhausted, but excited, little Faruqi arrived home. Soon, not only his family, but all the villagers were around him as he recounted to them his experience. He told them everything the man in white had taught him and that the man in white himself would soon come to visit them. Just as he had promised, the man in white arrived within about three days. He himself didn't speak much with the people, but he spent most of his time training little Faruqi in his hut. When the people came to ask questions to the man in white, he would humbly say, Hey, ask Faruqi, he will tell you. 
If Faruqi didn't know the answer, the man and wife would take Faruqi back into the hut and there he would explain it to Faruqi. Then the little boy would go back outside and answer the deep and spiritual questions of the elders. All in all, the man in white stayed for 90 days with little Faruqi, preparing him for his life work. That's where the story ended a moment ago. Through the years, as little Faruqi grew into manhood, his ministry expanded as he challenged the leaders of his land to act justly, not to use the poor tax as their pocket money, but to return it to the poor. Now watch how dreams are still significant. Watch this. This brought on persecution at times. On one occasion, he was jailed in a far-off city for his teaching against corruption. The jailhouse burned down by an unexplainable fire, and Faruqi could have walked free, but he did not. The authorities then transferred him to another jail in the same town. This time, a whole portion of the town burned down where he had been jailed. Again, by a fire that could not be explained, the city took it as a sign that he must be freed. Wise thinking. And that he must be some kind of holy man. Whoever you are, you're something. On another occasion, Faruqi had a dream, seeing the man in white who had now also revealed himself as the first and the last. He told Faruqi to send two of his half-brothers and another man to one of the most prominent men in the country to give that man a message from God. Now, hold on. Listen to this. This man was so powerful that many times governments rose and fell at his instigations. The men trembled at the order, but they obeyed, knowing that this was an extremely dangerous mission. They were but rural tribesmen, and this man was educated, the man in the government, and refined. How could they speak to such a man? Why did they have to go and not Faruqi? The men finally made their way to the big city. After several days... They were able to get an audience with a powerful man whose secretary ushered them into the waiting room of his huge office. To their great surprise, there was the man in white sitting there. The very man, the same one they had seen years before when they were but children. Years had gone by since that visit to that village. He's sitting in that waiting room. He had not changed at all. He was still the same. He smiled at them and said, don't worry. I'm here and I'll go with you. Hey, by the way, would that help you sometimes? Would that help you or what? Don't worry. And by the way, the promise, whether you see him or not, is just as true. I'm with you always. I will never leave you or forsake you. If you're on my mission, nothing will happen to you. Go for me. Oh, I love that story. So anyway, he says, oh, no, this gets even better. So... I'm with you. I'll go with you. Okay. The man in the presence of the man in white forgot all about their fears and they delivered a powerful message to this powerful personage. After these humble men had spoken, the man in white looked the leader in his face and said, I myself will judge you in the day of judgment according to the message that has been delivered to you by these men. Take them seriously. Faruqi's ministry eventually became widespread across the country. His ideas were published in national papers. He had followers from many different backgrounds. The evil one was not happy, and those in power tried to assure that his life be made miserable, and also the lives of his followers. Eventually, the persecution became so great that Faruqi and dozens of families of his closest followers had to leave the tribal homeland. They went to live in another big city, but while persecution did not end there, at least here they were safe for a while. Now listen, one day, a man dressed in black came to visit them. He had heard about their spiritual journey. He was most interested in the fact that they believed that those who were followers of Esau would be closer to God on the day of judgment. When Faruqi's wife saw him enter their home, she could not take her eyes off of something in his hand. It was a little black book. She kept asking herself why it was the book looked so familiar. Then she remembered why, of course, she had seen it 35 years earlier in a dream. Yes, there must be something important about that book. To make a long story short, they learned that it was the previous holy books mentioned in their own honored book, the Quran. Soon the whole group was studying the little black book. It led them to deeper and deeper faith as they, as they continued to study the lives of the great prophets of that black book. But most importantly, they studied the life of Isa, and many of them eventually made him the Lord of their lives. The group had many questions, such as how could it be that the man in black... Listen to this. And all his people did not keep God's holy day, as was explained not only in their own book, the Quran, but his book as well. The group sent their children to be taught about the little black book every week, but none of the adults went, for they had already had their day of rest the previous day. 
Once again, persecution flared up. Until it had risen to a new height, the local authorities didn't respect their own laws about tolerance and respect. Several men were beaten and one received 80 lashes until he dropped nearly dead to the ground. All because he would not renounce his belief in that little black book and the man of that book. Again, they fled to another city where they hoped they would find peace and freedom to worship according to the dictates of their conscience. Once again, God, listen to this, God provided for them incredibly beyond their wildest dreams in the city. A good and godly man heard of their plight. He was leaving the country to live somewhere else and he had a large compound big enough where all these dozens of families could live together in true Arab hospitality. He gave that compound to them and then left the country. Here in the big city, the authorities even somewhat protected them, but God was not done with them yet. He still had something more in store for them, but I'm getting ahead of the story. I'm reading my friend who's writing to me. I'm getting ahead of the story. I need now to back up and tell another story. Hold on now. Watch this. In a far-off place in Africa, there was a doctor whose friends came to know as, and he puts his name, I'm going to leave his name out. He and his family ran a clinic. I think, I'm, I, think I know this doctor. Been in correspondence with him. One day, many years ago, a man and his several wives and many children came to this doctor's clinic. The man was bringing one of his wives who was at the point of death. The kind doctor and his wife cared for her, trying their best to make her last hours comfortable since there was nothing more they could do to save her life. Even the doctor's daughter stood by to comfort the poor family. Now listen, the little son of the dying woman, whom we shall call Sequi, never forgot the kindness of this doctor and his family. In the passing of time, due to unfortunate events in his country, little Sequi had to flee and he lived in a refugee camp. He eventually met some kind people whom he soon learned were of the same faith as the doctor who had tried to save his mother's life. If this faith could make people so kind, he too wanted to be like that kind doctor and his family. And soon he made a commitment to God and was lowered into the water as a sign of that commitment. In search of better horizons, Sequi traveled to a far-off country looking for work and study. He enrolled in a language institute to learn English. He started classes, and before the week was over, he timidly went to the teacher, who was not much older than himself, and asked, Sir, please forgive me, but I can't come to class tomorrow. The teacher, whom we shall call Ahmed, asked him why he couldn't come to class the next day. The young man, very nervous, they said that it was his holy day and that he could not study on that day. Ahmed nearly fell over backwards as he couldn't believe his ears. You keep God's holy day? Yes. The student said, even more nervous now. The teacher said, please, please, don't be nervous, for I also keep God's holy day. Someone else comes to teach my class tomorrow. This time it was Sequi who was dumbfounded, wondering how it could be that his teacher keeps God's holy day. Soon, Sequi and Ahmed became fast friends. Sequi met Ahmed's family, including his prominent uncle, Faruqi. Now it comes around, you see. Soon, Sequi was studying with Ahmed, learning from that little black book and understanding many new things he and his family had not known before. About this time, the doctor decided to go to that city to visit some old friends. So he's coming to the city where Sequi is now living. Visit some old friends he hadn't seen. The doctor no longer practiced jungle medicine, but now fulfilled his passion and lifelong dream, training people who came from Faruqi's background how to explain the good news about God. He put things in a way that would be meaningful and understandable to those people. Building, up, building upon the very foundation that God had already laid there within their cultural and religious background. The doctor's friend soon told him, hey, we have some people that we think you should meet. So the doctor spent the next weekend training Faruqi's group about being God's end-time people within their own cultural and religious backgrounds. Shortly thereafter, 22 people decided to make a new commitment by being lowered into the water. This number has now grown in the city to around 90 people who have made this same commitment. Recently, I, my friend, telling me this, recently I was there to encourage, train, but also to learn from Faruqi and his people. Faruqi and his family related the story that we have just shared, related the story to me, the one who was the key player in it told him the story. After spending several days with them, my friend's writing, at the end of our final worship time held in Faruqi's home, he started to open up his heart to me. Now listen to this. He said, you know, if we only had a place of worship, we would not only have 20 who are here today or the 90 of us who are already believers, but there would be somewhere between three and 400 people who are on this spiritual journey. 
Haruki didn't want to be seen as begging in any way, but he did want me to understand that if they had a place, there would be several hundred people meeting with them in a very short period of time who could be organized to share what they've learned. Faruqi's last words to me were, Isa is coming soon. Sooner than any one of us believes. We must hurry. Hurry to the harvest before it's too late. Our people are ready. We just need a little help so that we can finish the work in our country. The end. Does that story surprise you? Doesn't surprise me. Come on. Don't you suppose the God of Abraham would tend to the children of Abraham to the very end of time? Hmm? Which is why, by the way, if you want to know God's heart toward Islam, don't follow Rome. Go to Bethlehem instead. For at Bethlehem, You've come to the place where Christ came to save the children of the East. Let's pray. I want you to stand for our benediction prayer, please. Oh God, that is it, isn't it? In Bethlehem is the place where Esau came to save the children of the East and the children of the West and the children of the North and the children of the South. Oh, Father, forgive us for thinking that divine revelations only happen where I go to church with people who believe like I believe. If you are the God of the Old and the New Testament, the God of Bethlehem, then it must be true in every people on earth. You are hurrying in your work to prepare a generation. Oh God, this story of the wise men of this millennium is such an affirmation to our faith. Whatever you're doing, please, dear God, do it. And finally, whatever you need from those of us who stand before you now, whatever you need from us to help you in this mission, please find hearts eager and generous to give back to the Christ who has saved us. In the name of Jesus, holy God, in the name of Christ, save this world one last time. Let all the people say, Amen and Amen.